0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are indeed great and almighty, sovereign, and also near and tender, gracious and kind. And I pray now, Lord, for us all gathered here, and myself and my own heart in particular, through one reason or another, I feel distracted and Disjointed. Maybe some others here do as well. So Father, I pray that you would, by the great might that you have and by the great kindness that you have, stoop even now before we even open your word, that you would come down to us in a, a shaping and conforming and calming and, and gathering way to pull us and our hearts and minds together here. And to remove from us all distraction. To give us minds and hearts that are attentive to You. And Lord, then when You do that, I pray that You would open up Your Word to us and Your great work to us. Because I believe that there is something here in Your Word that we as a church need. So would You give it to us? Would You gather us and conform us to Your image and produce change in us that will make us a different people? That will liberate us from, from some of the, the little prisons that we live in? That will make us new as a church? Lord, perhaps some here who don't know You would make them new as, as people, as individuals, would give them new life. But I think particularly of our church here. And I pray that you would set us free from any kind of entrapments that we are caught in. That you would do that by the power of your word this morning. As you open our eyes to your spirit. Tremendous, tremendous gift that you have given to us. Some of us take for granted. Open our eyes to him. Draw us to Him. Cause us to wonder at and marvel at and sing in thanks for Your work of sending Him. So, Lord, gather our minds here and then teach us for the sake of this, Your people, and for the glory of Your Son, Jesus. And I pray this in His name. Amen. This morning, we return to the book of Deuteronomy so as to continue listening to God's instruction for us, his people. Deuteronomy is one of the five books of the law of Moses. But if I say that word law, I'm aware that some of us misunderstand that word. What the word law means, Torah, Torah, it really means instruction or direction. So the law is God's teaching, His guidance for His people. And while a part of the law is in the form of legal code, it is, after all, intended in in, in the original giving of it as a way to govern this political ethnic nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. So a part of it clearly is in the form of legal code. We need to be careful not to think of it as just a bunch of rules. It's a collection of do's and don'ts. That is here, but that's not all that's here. We need to be careful not to fall into some short-sighted view of the law that only sees those sections of the law as legal code, only sees them or only sees them on the surface and misses the moral law, the moral instruction that lies beneath them. Because if we miss this, as many have, we fall into some serious error. Some misunderstand the law with a positive bent and think, Oh, finally, a list of do's and don'ts. So I know what to do and not to do so as to be right with God. And if I will just do these things and not do these other things, then I will be accepted by Him. And that is a tragic mistake. To view the law in that way, unfortunately, cuts a person off from God because it, it confuses you into thinking that there is a righteousness, a right standing before God that I can earn by obeying this. God never meant His people to understand if you obey this and walk in this way and do this, then you will produce from yourself an obedient righteousness. Instead, we are to receive a righteousness given from God. That's what the law is talking about. So misunderstand it with a positive bent is tragic, but equally tragic. Many who call themselves Christians and attend Christian churches, maybe even this one, misunderstand the law with a negative bent and think, well, since Christ has come, we don't need the law. There's nothing in it for us. Why bother? Why are we bothering with this whole thing? Which is equally tragic, because it cuts us off from what Paul told Timothy, is the Scripture useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's talking about all of the Old Testament and realize the Old Testament is built on the law of Moses. The prophets and the writings, they draw directly from the law. It is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and it points us to Christ who is the end of the law. And so the people of God have always said, along with the psalmist, Oh, how I delight in your law. How I meditate on it day and night, and it makes me to flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. The law, God's instruction. So, delighting in the law of God, His instruction for us, expecting that in the law our good and gracious teacher has much for us to grow us, to guide us, rebuking sometimes, correcting, pointing us towards Christ. With that in mind, it is not the least bit odd that we move from Christmas last week to Deuteronomy this week. It is not the least bit odd that we move from the New Testament, Luke, back to Deuteronomy. From Bethlehem and the manger and, and Jesus back to the plains of Moab and the banks of the Jordan. It is not like moving from fifth gear suddenly down to first gear with a tremendous jolt in the middle it's all the word of god it's all about the same one him jesus it's all beautiful it's all good different testament different time it's all good his word to us his people blessing to us so we're back in deuteronomy 16 we left off two weeks ago with Moses' instruction about the three great feasts that God had required of his people. required all the males, allowed, and even as we see today, invited everybody else to come to, but required the males to come to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate some feasts. And last year, we looked at Passover. Last Two weeks ago, we looked at Passover. Tied to a specific historical event, as are the rest of the feasts. All three of them shot through with prophetic glory. Passover, pretty obvious. Recounting how God delivered His people out of bondage in Israel and protected them from His wrath against the people of Egypt. His people right in the midst, His wrath falling, but He provides a way to protect them even though they are in the midst of the wrath by shielding them with the blood of a slain lamb. And when God's wrath comes and sees the blood, it will pass over all of those who hide under the blood of the Passover lamb. And they did that. That's what God did. He passed over them, brought them out of Egypt and carried them on towards the promised land. So obviously he's pointing towards Jesus, the true Passover lamb who shields people from the wrath of God. That was last week. And now this week we come to the second feast, the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost. Let me read the passage. It's a very short one. I'll read it and then explain some things about it using this passage and also some other Old Testament passages to explain what's going on in the Feast of Weeks, then I'll make some overarching observations. Deuteronomy 16, verse 9. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God, with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, And you shall be careful to observe these statutes. The word of the Lord. The text begins with with locating this feast on the calendar. They were to count seven weeks or seven sevens. Forty-nine days after the very first harvesting began. In the springtime, the first harvest would have been the barley harvest, followed by several other grain harvests immediately uh, right after that as the grain ripened. But obviously, that starting time would vary a little bit year to year and region to region based on geography. And if you're going to invite everybody to come to Jerusalem at a certain point, you need to know when that is. So Deuteronomy, as we've seen before, is rather vague in some of these details. It assumes we've read the rest of the law, which is more specific. And the rest of the law nails down when that starting date actually is. It's tied to Passover. They were to count seven weeks from the end of Passover, actually, right after the Passover, and then on the next day, celebrate the Feast of Weeks. So seven, 7 that's 49, plus 1 is 50. On the 50th day, which in Greek is Pentecost, the 50th day they celebrated this festival. And given that the Old Testament had been translated into Greek long before the time of Jesus, this festival was called Pentecost. Pentecost is not a Christian word at all. It's this celebration. But I imagine that you can guess where this is going. We're talking about Pentecost this morning. First in the Old Testament, but we're going to come to the New Testament. People of God gather from all over, seven weeks after Passover, a week full of weeks. She causes us to think that something special is going to happen at seven sevens. The doubling of this perfect number. And they celebrate this Feast of Weeks, which obviously takes its name from how it's counted off. And if you read elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's called the the Feast of the Harvest, the First Fruit of the Labor, the Day of First Fruits. Those names help us understand more than the Deuteronomy text, what's actually being celebrated in this feast. This was a time of praising and thanking God for the first crops of the year put yourself in an agricultural society, harvest equals life. When you bring in the harvest, you're bringing in what you need to live. Without it, you, you'll perish. So you need that. And when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, if he had not carried them to a place where they would be able to harvest and eat, they, they would have perished. So his promises were always more broad than just, I will bring you out of slavery. They were always, I will bring you out of this place of bondage and into a place of great liberty where I will prosper you and bless you with abundant crops. That was always the fullness of what he had promised to do, to deliver them and then to bless them year after year after year, because they needed that also. Now, when he speaks to them here in Deuteronomy, he's assuming that they've read the rest of the law, and we need to know some of what the rest of the law says so as to fully understand what's going on here. You can look this up in places like Leviticus 23 or Exodus 23 or Numbers 28. Without preaching those chapters, I'm going to pull out a few of those details kind of flesh out the story a little bit. In our Deuteronomy passage, when he says in verse 9 that they are to start counting from the time the very first grain is harvested, as I've said, it's tied to Passover, but we need to realize that day one, then, is the very, very, very beginning of the very first harvest. You can read in Leviticus 23, for instance, what they would do is they would gather the very first grains that were harvested, the very first ones to ripen. They'd gather those stalks into a sheaf, which is like a bundle of grain, and wave it in thanks to the Lord and offer up what He calls there a grain offering. Now, a couple of details here in there. And they're, they're helpful, I think. This grain offering consisted of two-tenths of an ephah. That's a measurement. Two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour and oil. Offered to the Lord. And they didn't wave the flour. That would have been a mess. But they wave the grain. And the flour that the grain makes is offered two-tenths of an ephah and oil. Day one. That's what you bring. And then you count... Seven weeks. And on day 50, at the other end of this celebration, they are to celebrate, as Deuteronomy 16, verse 10 says, by bringing a tribute, or really, literally it says, bringing a fitting offering, anything that you desire according to how the Lord has blessed you. This is going to be a great big feast. Verse 11 invites everybody in the whole nation to come. Bring your children Bring your servants, bring the Levites who don't have any land, bring the widow, orphans, sojourner, those in need, bring them all and sit down to do a great big feast, and according to how the Lord has blessed you, you can bring anything you want, anything that seems fitting. But what you must bring matches what you brought on day one. What you must bring is another grain offering, two tenths of an ephah of fine flour, this time turned into bread. On the front end, you bring a certain portion with ingredients, flour and oil. On the back end, you bring the very same portion, a grain offering also. But this time it's become bread, and it's leavened bread, which is unusual. It has leaven in it, so it has risen. It has multiplied, grown. So you celebrate on the back end. See the symbolism in there. At Pentecost, you're celebrating God's first fruit on day one, the very beginning of what He provided And then 50 days later, on the day of first fruit, you celebrate not just the raw ingredients of what he provided, but what you've done with it. Made it into bread. How it's multiplied and grown. That's the celebration. And he tells them all to come together and celebrate this great big feast. Everybody in the land rejoicing before the Lord with in mind the very last verse of the passage, his deliverance out of slavery in Egypt that led to his providing of this grain that you need for life. That's the feast. That's the passage, rather brief. Pretty straightforward. He creates a worship celebration, tells them to keep it. What does that say to us? Let me summarize it here. I'll give you a sentence and then I'm going to break it in half and make two observations. We are to rejoice and partake. Rejoice and partake. The Lord has brought forth the first fruits of Pentecost. He has brought forth the first fruit, the, the beginning At Pentecost. So we should rejoice and partake in that. I'm going to break that in half, talking about God first, where we have to begin always. First observation what God has done at Pentecost, God provides the first fruit of what His people need to thrive. We need something. We need it to thrive, not just to exist. You'll manage to get up every morning without this, but to thrive. You need what God has provided at Pentecost. Verse 10, he commands them to keep this feast so as to remember this this very point. And right here on the surface, I mean, my explanation of the text is not complicated. Because right on the surface, the text is not complicated. He provides a feast so that they will come every year. And he, he puts it on the calendar right at the very time when they'll have in their hands... A tangible reminder. Look, again this year, God has provided what we need to live. He's provided the very foundation for our nation to to exist, to grow, and to expand. Food. And here it is. And every year, they, they celebrate that. And it is evidence of a God who is faithful to provide. And as you celebrate first fruits, there is implied in that second fruits or subsequent fruits. A harvest. You you gather the very first stalks and you look out, there's the rest of the field. Not quite ripe yet, but surely coming on. And so you celebrate the very beginning. Look, God has again provided and He will provide even more. Praise God, this faithful one who continues to meet our need. He did not just bring us out of Egypt. He feeds us continually, day by day, year by year, decade by decade and so we come together and we celebrate this obviously right on the surface that's what's going on and it works really well you have the evidence in your hand you're all gathered together it's a great big feast as you eat that which you have produced from that which he provided on the surface that all makes perfect sense but there's more going on here what else has got up to in this? Well, knowing what we know now, it's not hard to hear all the double meaning in all this. We should see the typology in the Feast of Weeks. Typology. Remember that word? A type. A type is a concrete prophecy. A tangible, one you can touch or see. It's not just a spoken verbal prophecy. It's, it's tangible in some way. Like the Passover lamb is a type A concrete prophecy for Jesus. The temple is a type, a concrete prophecy again for Jesus. Well, what's the typology here in this feast? There's something that it's pointing to. What is it? Well, when Jesus, the true Passover lamb was slain, He delivered His people out of bondage to sin. He brought us out, liberated us, set us free. But right at that point, beginning immediately, right then, He saved His people out of bondage and into a place of profound, persistent need. Just like when we're physically born from our our physical mothers, we are not delivered from our mothers and then severed from any need of them. We continue to need them profoundly. Slightly different ways, but we need them nonetheless. And when God delivers His people out of bondage, He does not ever deliver us into a place where now we no longer need Him. In fact, maturity in Christianity is defined as a greater awareness of your need for Christ and a greater leaning on Him and a greater depending on Him. That's a mature person. We never graduate from needing Him. We graduate into needing Him. So he delivered us immediately into a place where we need. We can never say, oh, thank goodness he's removed the wrath of God from me. Now I'll take it from here. I, in my own power and my own wisdom, will grow myself up into what I am to be. Not the case. We need far more. We need provision for life. Real life. And God promised to give that, and He graciously did, seven sevens after Passover at Pentecost. We can read about it in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, proving that He was who He said He was, proving that He was God come in flesh to remove sin from those who trust Him. Rose to prove that, hung out with his disciples for a while to prove that he was alive. And then he ascended back into heaven to sit and to reign. But not before he said, there's something coming. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the promised one. From the very beginning of his ministry, he had promised to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. That is to immerse them in the Holy Spirit. And He said, shortly he will come upon you in Jerusalem. Go and wait for him. So they did. And when did that happen? Could have been any time. Could have been the next day. Could have been a month later. Could have been on the one year anniversary of the resurrection. That would have been appropriate, I guess. But it happened on Pentecost. Why? Think about this. On the day when Jerusalem is full of people who have gathered from everywhere around to celebrate God's provision for their lives, God provides for their lives. He pours out, not on everybody, He pours out on the church that which is critical and essential to thrive. More than just delivering at the cross, He promised to give the needed one. God indwelling. And He poured Him out at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, who is Himself the third person of the one triune God. There is only one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Given to His people in in an overflowing abundance at Pentecost to live inside, to provide what we need to thrive. Not just to get up in the morning, to thrive. This One is who we need. He is the first fruit given at Pentecost. Or as Ephesians 1 calls him, different words, same idea, the down payment. A first fruit, a down payment, both implied there's more to come. But you have this much right now as evidence that there's more to come. He has been given to us now, implying there's more to come, but He's given now so as to work in us now. And He works in us now like glasses. If you wear glasses, I hope you don't spend any time looking at your glasses. You know what that's like, to to try to actually look at your glasses. You don't look at your glasses, you look through them at other things. Glasses enable you to see that which is fuzzy. Change the illustration. He's been given to us to work like a floodlight. At night, illumining that which is already there, but is darkened and hard to see. You walk by an illumined building, you spend zero time peering into the floodlight. You look at the building. The statue. Whatever it is. This is trying to show something else. These are trying to enable you to see something else. The Holy Spirit given to us now to enable us to see what we need to thrive He has been given to enable us to see the glory of Christ. To see Jesus, sovereign and reigning. To see Him humbled, taking on the form of a servant, submitting to death, even death upon a shameful cross. To see Him gracious and kind in His healing of people. To see Him radically committed to truth in His confrontation of error. To see Him bent against evil so strongly that He acts to destroy it at, his own, at the sacrifice of His own self. The Spirit enables us to see that. It's right there. If you speak English, you understood what I just said. But the Spirit will enable you to see it. He helps us to understand the Word of Christ as He speaks to us in the Scriptures so that we can know truth. He helps us to comprehend the wonder of what He has done for us at the cross. Growing that as He helps us to see ourselves in our fallenness, in the wickedness that we were and are in our own natures that that lifts up, that glorifies Jesus, that He would come for an enemy like me. But a marvelous Christ, as the Spirit shows me me. He enables us to see the beauty of the people of God. A treasure to God the Father. And we see this by the power of the Spirit opening our eyes and enabling us to see it like He sees it. He enables us to trust Christ when it seems so foolish. He enables us to hope in Christ when it seems so bleak. To believe Him when everything else in the world is is pounding us with untruth. To love Him when he hides his mercy and love behind hard circumstances. To hate and forsake sin when it seems so attractive. To detect sin when it is so cleverly hidden. The Spirit illumines, enables you to see. To see a great hope If you're a believer, a great hope kept in heaven for you who believe. Hard to see now, but you can see it by the power of the Spirit. A hope at the heart of which is a wide, long, high, deep love that God has for you. Enables you to see that and to understand that and to grasp that and to believe it. You need this to thrive. You do not live on principles. You live on a person. And you cannot see that person unless the Spirit gives sight. Supernatural sight to your heart. What an awesome gift. What a remarkable gift. What a good God He is to give us that which we need to thrive The Spirit living in us, shining to enable us to see and to be changed. You need this now to thrive. You cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. You will be hoodwinked, overpowered, and misled. You need the Spirit. But the degree to which we have the first fruit of the Spirit now is speaking to a larger, greater, fuller degree when we have Him in totality. Now, careful there. The Spirit lives in us fully now. He is a person. He does not partially indwell, Christians. He lives fully. But we live now in a world that is still plagued with a sin nature. There is a moment coming when we will be moved from this world to the next. And the fullness of God will flood our vision, unhindered by any sin, unmasked by any fallenness. And He will engage in a centuries upon centuries upon millennium process of opening up the vista of the beauty of God. And He will declare to us His immeasurable grace, says Ephesians 2, forever and ever and ever. It's hard for me to describe that in words, but it is good. You will never run out of enjoying God. You'll never run out of more of God to meet and find and understand. And that will happen by the Spirit at work in you to open your eyes. There is a marvelous fullness of harvest that is coming. We have the first fruit now. Giving what we need to thrive. Giving us sight of Christ you don't need bread you need God and that comes by the spirit in you helping you see him it is a marvelous gift how are we to respond to that that's our second observation We are to respond to such a marvelous blessing by partaking joyfully. Let me put it in a sentence. Take care to appropriately honor the Lord's provided blessing in joyful partaking of Him. We honor this blessing in joyful partaking of Him. The text in Deuteronomy hints at that. It's such a brief text. There's there's not a lot there, but it hints at this. What do they do at this feast? They all gather together rejoicing and they eat that which He provided. They partake of that which He provided rejoicing together. That's so where I get my two words there, rejoicing and partaking. Clearly, we honor a gift giver by saying thank you. And we honor a gift giver by saying thank you as if we really mean it. Joyfully, happily, rejoicing, thankful for the gift and the giver, both. And we re- as we realize the magnitude of a gift... The greater our delight is in that gift. I wonder how many of us just received gifts over which we delighted to a degree you've never even thought about delighting at the Spirit. Follow what I just said there. Past couple days, many of us have received different gifts. Maybe you're 10 years old and you got a bike. And you jump for joy. and immediately dashed outside to race up and down the street on it. Or maybe you're 50 years old and, and you got something a little more extravagant and complicated and costly. Or touching and, and sentimental and special. Whatever it was, you've received, if not this Christmas, previous Christmases or birthdays, you've received gifts that have just warmed your heart and have stirred you to thanksgiving. And I wonder... How many of us respond in radically different ways to the stuff we get and have never come anywhere near that kind of response to the Spirit being given? I sit here and I talk about the Spirit being given. Yep, that's a good thing. Man, I can't wait to get home and play with my bike. That's where life is. I'm joking with you a little bit there, but there's a real point in that. Most of us, I think, most of us have very little idea what it is to delight in the outpouring of the Spirit. And rejoicing is very often connected to your realization of the greatness of the gift. So, if there's not the rejoicing, it makes me wonder do you realize how great the gift is? Do you realize that He is the counselor who speaks God's truth to you? Apart from Him, you would be lost in ignorance. Do you realize that? Do you realize that He convicts of sin, guiding you away from that which is subtly laid across your path, but would destroy you? What a friend. Do you realize that He is a comforter to your soul? That this God who is good would be distanced from you? Maybe just left as a concept in your mind unless the Spirit were to bring Him in a real, living way to your heart to ease your pain. Apart from Him, you'd be lost in pain. You realize that. Communicates the love of God to you. He intercedes for you in prayer when you don't know what to say. He goes before you and says, Father, give this one this, though he doesn't even have any idea that's what he needs. What a good gift, one who would do that for you. He enables you to say no to temptation. He sanctifies you as he changes your mind, growing you up in maturity. He gives you boldness and ability, power, to speak the Word of God in situations where it's needed. He is the presence of God living in you. If you have experienced any of this, if you have experienced that, then rejoice in it. And as you remember, rejoicing should rise up in you. What a good gift He has given you. Do you see yourself in Paul's description of the Christian in Romans 8.23? This is not a super-duper Christian. This is the Christian Christian. What we're all supposed to be, if you're a believer. He says this of Christians. We who have the first fruit of the Spirit, Christians, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, essentially, the fullness, the completion of God's work of redemption. Do you find yourself like that Christian groaning inwardly because you don't have it all yet, wanting more, expectant, eager, like someone who's tasted a a morsel of of a fine entree that's not quite done yet. Pulled it out of the oven to check the temperature, it's not quite done yet, but you snitched off the outside, man, was it good. And you can't wait for it to come out. Is that your attitude towards what the Spirit gives you? Sight of Christ. Or are you still left... Intellectually Affirming the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but not eager for Him, not thankful for Him. That could be because you're not a Christian. That could be. It might be that you don't have any idea what I'm talking about experientially because He doesn't live in you. You don't have the first fruit of the Spirit. That's why you don't eagerly wait for more. You've never tasted it. That could be. Or it could be you don't rejoice in Him and want more of Him because you do not adequately partake of Him. If you think about this cycle, you've never actually snitched anything, so you don't want more of it. There's a cycle that the more you snitch, the the more you want. If you don't take any of it, if you don't partake any of it, you don't realize how good it is. Maybe you don't adequately partake. You understand the doctrine, but you don't submit to the command of Ephesians five eighteen. Be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Not with anything else. You contrast it with wine. Don't be filled with wine, and he would say, or with anything else that would control you and influence you decisively. Instead be filled with controlled decisively directed by the Holy Spirit of God. It's a command. What a good command. Feast on this one that you need to thrive. Be filled with Him. Be controlled by this one. He has provided this blessing and then called you to it. Commanded you. What child argues with a parent who commands him to eat ice cream? Nobody. Nobody. Pick your favorite thing if you don't like ice cream. That's that's where we stand before God. Be filled with this command. What a wonderful command. Partake. Partake of this one who would be your joy. If he will open your eyes to see the one you need. So I ask you, do you yield to him? Day by day, moment by moment, are you consistently filled by the Holy Spirit? Not do you understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Are you filled by Him? Have you yielded your life? Do you you stand before God the Holy Spirit every morning, perhaps, every afternoon, every moment that you need to renew this to say, God, I give myself to you. I want no walls, no barriers. I'm I'm creating no little fiefdoms that I remain in control of. You have me. I yield. Please take control of me and direct me in this moment, this day, this afternoon, in this coming conversation. Is that your posture towards God the Holy Spirit? Some of you know that it is talk about it a lot with you, but others I'm I'm not so sure. You live in a kingdom, church, you live in a kingdom in which the sheaf, the bread is plentiful on the table. But I think you're out nosing around in a garbage can somewhere looking for food. Come to the table. Come to the table and partake. Be filled. He commands it for your good. This should not be a hard command. It should be a beautiful one. He has given us the Spirit to produce a very different life in us. A life that is filled with sight to see the invisible. It's, it's right there. It's just hard to see it. To see the invisible and then to live upon God who is invisible. He's given you the Spirit to give you that which you need to thrive. And I need to point this out too because it is the emphasis of Acts. And for the multiplying of the church. The Spirit is given in the book of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. It is no accident that the two halves of this feast are what God provides, and then we offer back to Him what we have done with what God provides. It is no accident that on the day of Pentecost, what God provided is then turned, and as Spirit-filled Christians proclaim the Word, we offer back to Him, not just our own changed lives, but 3,000 people. The first fruits of the New Testament church. The beginning of the harvest. It's going to go on from there, but it starts right at the moment that God provides the Spirit. And we don't we don't then make converts... It's His power in us. It's the Spirit, obviously, who does this. But by His strength, we can do all things. And we have to. We are not to remain passive. We have to take the Spirit in us and go make bread. That involved people taking bread and oil that God had provided and making bread with it. and presenting it back to Him. He's given us the Spirit for our own lives. But we have to never miss the point that you would receive power to proclaim the Word of God in whatever setting it is necessary, particularly in witness. You can do that, Christian. You can proclaim the Word of God. You have the Spirit living in you. You pray that He'll open their eyes and give them sight. And in the power of the Spirit, you proclaim the Word. You love people where they are. You give them what they need, which could be a helping hand and could be the Word of God. Depending if they're a Christian or not, or if they're in a sin situation or not, it's hard to say. Judge the circumstance. He means to do that in His people as well. Not just work on us, but work through us in others. We rejoice and partake, and partaking is going to take us out from here to others' lives. I want to be a part of a church like that. I want to be a part of a church that cares passionately about being yielded to the Spirit of God. Not a church that's flaky and superficial. There is no direct connection between being yielded to the Spirit of God and being a flaky, superficial, flippant sort of person. Sometimes I think those of us who are a little more conservative in our demeanor confuse those two things. There is no direct connection. Paul lived filled with the Spirit of God. I have a really hard time imagining him as flippant and superficial. And that probably got bounced out of him the first time he got stoned. He knew the real world and he lived in it. in the power of the Spirit. I want to be a part of a church. I want you to be a part of a church. Not a superficial, flippant church that has to act like it's filled with the Spirit. But a church that actually is filled with the Spirit. That will show itself as the fruit of the Spirit grow in us: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I did not hear complaining in that list. I didn't hear grumbling in that list. I didn't hear moping in that list. There is real sorrow in life, but we are to sorrow while ever rejoicing. I want to be a part of a church that is filled with the Spirit, that has people that are filled with the Spirit, that are consistent and earnest and want more of Him, and grown with the little that we know of Him. I want to be a part of a church that is concerned for those who live out there, and is concerned before the Spirit of God, help me to influence those out there, prays for people, talks to them, realizes their lostness, the hope that is only found in Christ, has compassion and love for lost sheep, harassed without a shepherd. Doesn't see them as the enemy. I want to be a part of a church like that. More importantly, God wants His church to be like that. We don't get to vote. Do we want to be like that or not? It's not up to us. If we're not going to pursue that, we're in disobedience. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Partake of Him. Rejoice in Him. Thrive on what He feeds you with. Who He feeds you with. God has given us the first fruit of what we need to thrive at Pentecost. Turn to Him. Yield to Him. Let me pray. Spirit of God, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts even now. Would you work here in this room in the hearts of individual people? Not just in our church big picture, but in each individual story here in these seats. Would you work? Convict of sin where that's necessary. Breathe in hope where that's necessary. Point out the grace and love of Christ where that's necessary. Encourage. Convict. Draw people to You. Spirit of God, would You do that here in our midst? As we sing, would You do that? Afterwards, as we sit and, and contemplate, if there are some that You want to work on, Lord, in unique ways, Lord, continue to do that. Don't let them get away. Pursue them for their good. And Lord, as we turn to a new year, Would this be a new year in the life of this church? I can't say different than every other one. I don't know every other one. But new, refreshed, may we live by the Spirit. Give us that grace, I pray, for Christ's glory and for the good of this your people. Amen.